All right, before I, I really get started in the sermon today, I want to kind of step back just a, a little bit uh, and kind of tell you a fun couple of conversations I get to keep having over the past couple of weeks. A couple of weeks, we did a sermon where we talked about how uh, the future of the church may look different than the past of the church, uh, which is not to say that the church is going to leave its longstanding tradition of being people that live by the book and that believe that the Bible is God's word for us and guides us how to live. It doesn't mean that we're going to quit trying to do the purposes of God in the place where God has put us. What it does mean is that we live in a world where Christianity is being pushed to the margins. And the fastest growing type of faith in adults in their 20s and 30s is none or spiritual non-religious. We live in a world where the influence of, of Jesus and scripture and the church on the world is being continually reduced. And there's so many challenges that exist in the world today uh, as the world becomes more secular and doesn't expect God to show up. And the church so often doesn't expect God to show up or make a difference. That all of these things become challenges that are going to require churches that want to be viable and successful and God-honoring, living out the mission of God in the world. We're going to have to do things differently than we've been doing them. That, that the days of maintenance mode and the status quo where churches have been able to maintain a certain level of attendance and health and vitality for decades without doing anything and taking risks and going on adventures and following the Spirit, that those might be days that we can look back on with nostalgia, but they might not help us a lot in the, the years ahead. What that means is, at Northwest, we're going uh, to engage in, and we kind of told you this a couple weeks ago, that at Northwest, the first thing we're going to do is we will not go anywhere without beginning to understand the role of the Holy Spirit that has so often been neglected in, in Christianity for the last hundred, several hundred years, but especially in churches of Christ, uh, that we're going to spend a lot of time talking about who the Holy Spirit is, what the Holy Spirit is up to, and figuring out how we can get in touch with that Holy Spirit power that Jesus promises is going to enable us to live differently than if we didn't have it. And after we spend some time really talking about what the Holy Spirit is up to in the world and in God's creation and the kingdom of God and at Northwest and in our lives, we're going to pivot to an opportunity and a season of time of listening to the members of this church. And so here's where the conversation gets funny. As, as I'm telling you that the next step we're going to do is we're going to listen to the, the desires of the members of this church. We're going to ask you what you love about Northwest. We're going to ask you what you see as challenges for Northwest. What are opportunities for growth? We're going to listen to you do that. And we're going to kind of document what you believe. And out of that, develop some roadmaps for the future. And it's a funny thing how many people come up to me and go, hey, so uh, what's going to change? And I say, I don't know yet. We're going to listen, listen to God, listen to you, and then we're going to start taking risks and going on adventures and doing experiments in faith and Christianity and, and taking chances to try and seek and save the lost, to try and for, get us to grow spiritually, to become more of the people God wants us to be. Whatever it is that God puts ahead of us, the question is, are we willing and ready to go where God calls us and where this church wants to move? And I hope the answer is yes. Um, and I say that, and then several of the people I'm talking to is like, yeah, 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 what's coming? It's like, I don't know yet. I don't know yet. But church, I'm telling you, I'm excited too, and I'm nervous too. 
Because so often in Scripture, when the Holy Spirit calls someone, and when God calls someone to get up and move, to go to a new place, to do a new thing, they often end up saying, God, I don't want to do that. Before God says, well, I want you to anyways. And so I'm, I really am being honest with you when I tell you that for me, I envision Northwest this year entering into a season of listening and learning and watching and seeing who God is and where he's guiding us. Because as we read in the scripture this morning, and Lee talked about in the communion text, there's this passage in John 14 where Jesus is about to leave the apostles. It's this really long section in John's gospel where Jesus has come to the end of his ministry. He's been spending years with the apostles and the disciples, and he's been teaching them and training them and guiding them. But he's also befriended them. And he also cares about them, and they care about him. And he's telling them, I'm going to Jerusalem to be crucified, and I'm going to make a place and prepare a place for you. And he's telling them that all of this is coming. And they're just, they're stressed about this. It, this is, in many ways, like finding out that one of your best friends is saying, I'm going to die. My situation is terminal. I will not keep living. And they experience that with many of the same burdens and griefs that we would experience that with. And at the same time, they believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They believe he's the king, the son of God, the one who has been sent. And so they're having a hard time figuring this out. God's son can't be taken to Jerusalem to die. God's son goes to Jerusalem to become king. And he says, no, you haven't fully understood all that has been written and all that has been said and all that has been prophesied. And in the midst of this conversation that he's having with them, he says in, in John 14, starting in verse 12, he says, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And if you've read the Gospel of John before, what you know is that the things that Jesus has been doing are incredible. That the poor have been cared for. That the outsiders have been treated like insiders. That, uh, that the blind have seen. That he's fed thousands. That he's walked on water. He's calmed storms. He's done all of these things. And he says, listen, I'm leaving. And the apostles are thinking, then your ministry is over. And he says, no, my ministry is starting when I leave. It starts when I leave. Because the Spirit is going to come unto all of those who believe. And he continues... He says, I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. That's why we end many of our prayers within the name of Jesus, we pray. Because we believe that in the name of Jesus Christ there is power, and we pray in his name. Amen. And he continues, if you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. For he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. What an incredible thing. 
for Jesus to tell them, I'm leaving, but it's good for me to go because I'm going to send you one, the Spirit, who will come and enable you to have the power to do the things that I have done and even greater things, but not just great things for the sake of being great, great things to continue doing what you've seen me already do. My ministry, Jesus envisions, will continue in my absence because of my presence in you who believe in me and take my name. Those of you who are in Christ will have the Spirit dwelling in you. If you're in Christ, the Spirit is in you. And if the Spirit is in you, it empowers you to do even greater things than Jesus did. As you continue to do the things that Jesus did and does today through us by the power of the Spirit. It's incredible. It's incredible. It's incredible to the point of being absurd. And so often in Jesus' teachings, and as he lays them out there, the response of the listeners is, Jesus, that's insane. And this would have been one of those moments that his audience would have said, Jesus, you're out of your mind. He kind of just leaves them with, you'll see. You'll see. Paul is going to write later about what happened in the crucifixion and the resurrection, what happened when the Spirit came into the church and all of those who believe. So that when Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is writing now with hindsight on the things that Jesus was predicting with foresight. Jesus says, this will come. Paul said, guess what? It happened. And here's how Paul talks about it when he's thinking about what's going on in the church in Ephesus. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Church, I'll tell you, I hope that, that Paul would write that about this church too. Because of your faith in Jesus and your love for all God's people. See, this was a challenging thing. What Paul is kind of saying behind the text here is that the the church there has Ephesus for the Jews in Christ and the Greeks in Christ and the men in Christ and the women in Christ. That it has he has love for all of those who are God's people. There's no longer slave or free, uh, barbarian or Scythian, all of these things that Paul talks about in his letters. The things that the world thinks divide them. He says, I thank God for you and your church. That you don't let the divisions come in the way. That you have a love for all of God's people. And so if someone is one of God's people, you love them. And I thank God for that. I thank God that you have faith in Jesus and love for all God's people. Because the truth is that we still live in a world today where there are people who claim to have faith in Christ without having love that's demonstrated for all of God's people. And what... What Paul is thankful for and Jesus is thankful for is when the church does what it's supposed to do. And because of its faith in Jesus, it loves all the ones belonging to God. All the ones belonging to God. I keep asking, and he's talking about in his, Paul's talking about it in his prayer. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. 
That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Paul, often in his writing, when he's talking about something that's important to him, will use the language of talking about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And he wants to use the language of all three so that you know that, that what God is up to is being done by all of God. Father, Son, and Spirit, all of them engaged with their own different uh, personalities and characteristics and gifts and the different ways that they interact with us. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit come together to do something in us and for us. And in this passage, Paul's writing in Ephesians, and he says, don't you realize that God did this in Jesus so that the spirit of wisdom and revelation might come to you so that you could know God better? And that in the process of getting to know God better by the spirit because of the son at the sending of the father, that what begins to happen is that you receive a power. You receive power. What kind of power? What kind of power do we receive because of the work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit? And what Paul writes is you receive the same power that was exerted when God got Jesus out of the grave. That's the power. And not only did he get Jesus out of the grave, but he then raised Jesus to sit at his right hand in the heavenly realms, giving him authority over all rule and all power and all the rulers and anything. And, and, and if you get what he's saying here, Right now, church, this is true for us today because it's in the present age and the age to come. We're still in the present age. And the age to come is still to come and is still coming. It says if you get this, you just write the name of whoever it is you're afraid of right here on this line. And here's what you need to know. Jesus is that person's boss. Whether they acknowledge it or not. Take any fear that you have in this world and write it on a line. And what you need to know is that Jesus has authority over what you're afraid of. Jesus is over everything. And he's been placed over everything so that he has this power and we get this power. The same power that seats him at the right hand of God. That all of that happens for the sake of the church. For the sake of the church. So that the church, which is his body which the fullness of him exists in the church in every way, so that we might do his work in the world. So in John's gospel, Jesus foretells it. In Paul's letter to Ephesus, he says, here's what's been happening and will keep happening. Jesus left, the Spirit came, the Father sent both of them, and because all of that is true, you now have power to do even greater things the kind of things that only come from the power that raised Jesus from the dead. That power now dwells within you and exists in the church. The fullness of God existing in the church, which is us, by the way. That that fullness exists in us so that we might be the body of Jesus doing his work in the world today. Jesus foretold it. Paul reported it. We continue to live it out. Confident that we can do the things that Jesus needed done as his body empowered in the world today. That that 
should be our expectation. And yet, it's rarely our expectation that those things will happen. It's rarely our expectation that we shouldn't be afraid of the world because we have the power that raised Jesus from the dead and set him at the, the, the right hand of God. It's rarely our expectation that we can do even greater things than Jesus continuing his ministry in the world because his spirit was sent to us when he left. We don't have that expectation. And I, I, don't, I don't think that we can thrive in the future of Christianity as we move forward if we don't start expecting Jesus and God and the Spirit to follow through on their promises. I don't think we'll make it if we don't increase our anticipation and expectation. And if we do that, I think it's going to blow our mission and our vision out of the water. If we actually believe that we can do greater things by the power that raised Jesus from the dead, that that is the calling of the church today to be transformative in the world that we live in by all of those means, how can our vision be status quo? How can our goals and our purposes remain ordinary? We look at the challenges in our world and can often feel overwhelmed. That might be because we keep asking for a trickle. We keep asking for a trickle of what God has promised when his desire is to pour out into us and to pour out into the world with abundance. To overflow in his pouring out of himself into us and into the world. And we just keep asking for a trickle and expecting a maybe. Why God is saying, if you'll just open yourself and your church to what I'm wanting to do, I will pour out my spirit into you and you won't be able to keep up. But keep trying because we've got a mission to go on. This last Easter, we we kind of did a call for artists at Northwest to kind of present what they imagined uh, is is part of the Easter story, the resurrection story. It's this, uh, this idea that when Jesus got out of the grave, things changed, and we wanted to celebrate Jesus' resurrection, celebrate that through the giftedness of our members. And, and one of the things that came out of that uh, was this painting, and Bart Dodson did this painting, and, and he had it uh, on display, and it, it talked about Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44 Isaiah 44 is a passage that is written to Israel when they're in exile in Babylon. Babylon has come in and they've they've overthrown the the Israelites' army and their military and they've come over the walls and they've destroyed the temple and they've taken the Israelites into captivity in Babylon. And there the Israelites live, ashamed, questioning, not knowing who they are or who they belong to, wondering if they'll ever get to go home or if this is their new home. Should they just become Babylonians now, or are they still the people of God living in a different place? Are they subjected, or are they being brought into a new people, or are they still God's people? They're asking all these questions. And in the midst of asking these questions about who they are and where God is and who God is, and if this, the covenant even still exists, I say at 44 verse 1, says this. But now listen, Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Jacob and Israel, both names for God's people. Listen now, Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. This is what the Lord says. He who made you, who formed you in the womb, and who will help you. Do not be afraid, Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. 
For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. Some will say, I belong to the Lord. Others will call themselves by the name of Jacob, and still others will write on their hand, Yahweh's, the Lord. And will take the name Israel. God writes through the prophet Isaiah to his people who are in exile, and they've got so many questions, and they don't know what's going on. And, and when we exist in a world where suddenly the world that the church lives in today starts to feel more and more like exile, we feel a little bit more like strangers in our own homes, and, and we see what's going on in the world, and we think, boy, in, in our better days as a country, some of these things may not have happened, and maybe some of them would, and there's a whole complex history of that. But the reality is that Christianity does not have the influence and seat of honor in our world like it used to. Exile starts to feel familiar to us. And God writes to Israel in exile, and he says... There is coming a day when I will reclaim you and I will take you home. And when I do, I will pour out my spirit on dry ground. <clears throat> on dry and dusty ground. I will pour out my spirit. And the ground that right now is so dry that it's filled with cracks and it's separating will suddenly be filled with streams of water. Now, I'm going to pour out so much water on this dry ground that is barren in the world that you live in today that what's going to happen is that the ground will soak up and drink as much as it can and the water will keep pouring out and it will keep flowing until there are streams running over what used to be broken, dry dirt. There's going to be small rivers running out of what God's going to pour on the land. And then he says, and here's what you also need to know. I am also going to pour out my spirit on your offspring and your descendants. My people will not stay thirsty. I will pour into them and they will overflow with my spirit being poured into them. And then he merges the two images so that the image of, of the water of streams on dry ground and the image of the spirit and the descendants of God's people become one. And he says, your children will become like grass of the meadow. Your descendants will become like poplars growing on the side of the riverbanks that are so fed by the water that is poured into them that they grow huge even as the land around them fails to thrive. That's what God's spirit will do in his people when he brings them home from exile. Do not worry. I will not leave you thirsty. I will not leave you empty. God will pour out into us. And so when he does that, he says, listen, right now you're confused and you're questioning and you want to know all the things about who you are and why you're where you are. Why are you suffering if I'm your God and I've said you'll be my people and I'll take care of you? Here's what you need to know. When my spirit is poured out into you, you're going to find so many ways to say I belong to God. I belong to Yahweh. I belong to the people of God. I belong to Israel. You'll write it on your hands. I am Yahweh's. Yahweh's. You will claim that I am your God and you are my people. 
And it's not just in Isaiah. Ezekiel is another one of the prophets who was, in fact, himself one of the exiles. And so Ezekiel was in exile in Babylon with these same people going through these same seasons of difficulty. And he writes to them as a prophet telling them what God wants them to know. In Ezekiel 39, he says this. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will now restore the fortunes of Jacob and will have compassion on all the people of Israel and I will be zealous for my holy name. They will forget their shame and all the unfaithfulness they showed toward me when they lived in safety in their land with no one to make them afraid. When it's safe to be the people of God, we take God for granted. And they will forget the shame and all the unfaithfulness they showed for me when they lived in safety in their land with no one to make them afraid. But when I have brought them back from the nations and have gathered them from the countries of their enemies, I will be proved holy through them in the sight of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God. For though I sent them into exile among the nations, I will gather them to their own land, not leaving any behind. I will no longer hide my face from them, for I will pour out my spirit on the people of Israel, declares the sovereign Lord. What's it it going to be like? God says, here's the thing. Once you've gotten afraid of the challenges that are out there, you're going to call on my name again. And when you call on my name again and say, God, we're ready to stop being safe and apathetic and unfaithful and ashamed of who you are and who we are, when you're done with that, You'll call on my name, and God says, and I will show up, and I will take you home, and I'll take you home so that the world will know that I am God and that I am good. And when that happens, he says, I will pour out my spirit on you. Not a trickle. Not, God's not going to be stingy. God will pour out his spirit on you, and he tells the people, and you will see my face again. I will no longer hide my face from you because the world that you're going to be living in when I pour my spirit out on you is going to be filled with my glory and you will see it everywhere. God's not stingy with the spirit. The prophet Joel writes of a different time of difficulty in Israel's history. A time when a plague of locusts had come and ravaged the countryside. And the people cried out, God, how can this be? How will we survive? How will we get through uh, this season of the locusts coming to us? And there's conversations about the day of the Lord and the coming of all of these challenges. And so in Joel chapter 2, he writes about the day that Israel is no longer going to be suffering under the plague, but is going to be restored on the day of the Lord. And he says, when the restoration comes... Verse 28, afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. This passage right here 
foretells of a day that the Lord's Spirit will be poured out on his people, says that the men and women will declare God's goodness and will prophesy, and the young men will see visions, and the old men will see visions. And you get this feeling that as Joel is writing, that his adrenaline is flowing, and he's telling you of a time when all of God's people will be filled with the Spirit and will be doing the work of the Spirit and proclaiming that God is good and God saves and God redeems. And we know that that's what Joel had in mind because Peter, the apostle, when he stands up at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, quotes this passage. He says, Israel, we've been praying for a day that God would pour out his spirit on his people and you would see this happen. And you've been waiting with expectation for the day that someone would say, this is that day. Peter stands up in front of them and says, this is that day. Amen. Because Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, was resurrected. And he did so for salvation, which is an idea he probably got from Joel chapter 2. From the fact that Jesus explained it to him along the way. That Peter says, the Spirit has now been poured out and the day has come, the day of the Lord. When the Spirit is poured out and the word of God is proclaimed. And it says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And even Peter didn't understand how many people that would eventually come to meet. He had no idea. Peter got surprised later when the Spirit gets poured out on someone he didn't expect it to get poured out on. But that's for next week. Here's what I want you to know today. What you need to know is that not just since the resurrection has God's spirit been poured out on his people so that they might be able to live with power doing greater things with the power that raised Jesus and set him at God's right hand. That that didn't start then. That God has always in the, been in the business of pouring out his spirit on dry ground. Of pouring out his spirit into his people. Of pouring out his spirit in ways that reveal that he is God and he is good. Of pouring out his spirit in ways that makes the nations know who God is. Of pouring out his spirit in ways that allow us to see his face that had previously been hidden from us. In ways that allow us to become his people showing the world who he is and what he's doing. And we look at the challenges that exist in the world today and the challenges that exist in the church today and we get afraid and we get scared. And I think it's because we keep asking God for a trickle and thinking he'll say maybe. What if God said, I want to pour out my spirit on the church if you'll just say, let's go? What if God said, I continue to ache for my spirit, the advocate that Jesus promised to break into the lives of all of those who believe in him and call on his name so that we'll keep doing the work of Jesus in the world by the power that Paul says raised Jesus from the grave and sent him at the right hand of God. What if we actually believed that Jesus and Paul meant what they said and that we as Christians today in this present age and in the one to come can do anything through the spirit that dwells within us and empowers us because God just wants to keep pouring and pouring and pouring into us. And he, gets, he has to be so frustrated when all we want is just a little bit of a sip. And we just keep praying for a trickle. And God says, you better get ready, church, because when the church goes on mission, I'm going to pour out my spirit onto the dry and dusty grounds and into the descendants of my children so that the world will know who I am.
Church, if we're going to go on mission, if we're going off the map into uncharted territories, if we're going to listen to where God wants us to go, we need to understand that we're not going to go into that place drinking just a trickle of the Spirit. God's ready to pour out into the world, and he'll pour into us first so that the overflow becomes a blessing as we become the body of Jesus that the world is desperate to see living in this world again. If you're here today and you're listening to this and you've never received the gift of the Holy Spirit, which comes into you when you believe in Jesus Christ and you're baptized, your sins are washed away, and once that happens, you're ready to be the temple. And what it means when you become the temple is that God's Spirit dwells in you. The Spirit gives you gifts. The Spirit begins to create characteristics of God. We call them the fruit of the Spirit in you. And the Spirit begins to transform you and pour into you so that you can become Jesus to the world, bringing heaven into the now. That's the invitation. If you've ever thought that the invitation for Christians is to be saved and then wait till you die to go to heaven, you've not read much of the book. Because the Spirit is calling all of those who are saved to become alive and active doing the work of Jesus with unbelievable power every day. And if you want to be part of a, a church and a kingdom and a movement like that, then come forward this morning while we stand and sing.